I'm sure we echo the prayer of that song, Come and Fill Our Heart with You. Good morning again. It's good to be here. I want to confess that I um, had a little bit of a struggle this past week trying to decide what I was going to speak about. Uh, I don't know whether any of you have ever had a struggle on how you, you might present yourself in a certain situation. But I did have a struggle, and I finally uh, decided after prayer and trust that uh, what I did decide upon will be that which God really wanted us to hear today. So uh, may the Lord uh, be honored and glorified in what is said. Of all the uh, major religions of the world, only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founder. You know, there have been many numerous critics, numerous skeptics, numerous doubters, and thank God many numerous believers also, who believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today what I'd like to do is to think with you about the response of one man to the resurrection story. We have come to call this particular man Doubting Thomas. And I'd like to read with you from John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. John's Gospel, chapter 20, and reading from verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And Father, we just ask again that you bless our meditation this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the definitions of doubt is to be in two minds. And perhaps you know the feeling. Sometimes you think this, and sometimes you think that. Sometimes you feel sure of something, and at other times you feel very unsure. Certainty and uncertainty cloud our minds and our thinking. 
I have heard the word doubt quite often in recent days. Is Iran to make an atomic bomb? Some say yes, and some say no. Should the Senate change its rules with regard to filibusters of nominated judges? Some say yes, and some say no. We wonder about the price of gasoline and how much longer it's going to keep going up. We don't know. Sometimes we have our doubts as to whether it ever will come back down again. And there are literally thousands of issues concerning which the word doubt is appropriate. And for whatever reasons, people have come up with the saying, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I read a little story the other day that went something like this. A man had written a postcard to his psychiatrist, and he wrote the card from Rome, Italy. And the card said this, Having a great time. Wish you were here to tell me why. (laughs) Uh, Once again, a form of doubt. Don Cole, who many of us here know, is a kind of Bible answer man for the Moody Bible Institute of the Air. Don said that one of the greatest issues for believers among his listeners, and which generated the most questions of all, was the issue of doubt. And Doubting Thomas undoubtedly has received a lot of bad press. But the label has become a symbol of unbelief and lack of trust. And for all the negativity surrounding Thomas, he is an example of a doubter who moved from doubt to positive affirmation of faith. And when he saw, when he saw the Lord Jesus, victorious, alive, from the dead, he exclaimed those great words, My Lord and my God. Certain circumstances almost guarantee doubt. And I would like to look at a few of those areas that seem to produce doubt. First, many people are afflicted with doubt when they face prolonged and terrible suffering. And we just heard a little bit about George Nicholas. Pray for that dear man. I don't know who he is, but he's my brother. So we pray for him. Severe pain is very hard to handle. Secondly, we have a great fight with uncertainty and doubt when we are confused by our perceptions of God. That is, when he doesn't act the way we want him to act, or he doesn't act in the way we expect him to act, we have trouble with that. Thirdly, if we have time, we have our doubts when we remain in the dark with regard to our questions. Questions to which we don't have satisfactory answers. And many of these are theological questions. What about Joshua's long day? Could that really be? How could Noah fit all the animals in the ark? Was there that really that much room? 
Did Israel really cross the Red Sea on dry land? And there are questions. And some people uh, have doubt growing in their hearts when they consider some of these things. Lastly, the thing I'd like to talk about is some, some responses to these areas of doubt. So one of the most troubling questions that is frequently asked is, why do Christians suffer? Or why do I as a Christian suffer? And perhaps you have asked yourself that very question. When people are faced with a physical enigma in their lives, when they face terrible suffering, or when there's a chronic health problem that doesn't seem to have a ready answer, or that doesn't make any sense to them, we cry, why? Very loudly. We cry our why not because we're looking for a textbook answer to an academic question, but rather because with all our hearts, we're attempting to make sense out of a world of pain. And so we ask, did I do something to deserve this pain? Am I being punished for something that I did? And if God can intervene, why doesn't He? Why am I not experiencing victory over this pain? And when we fail to make sense out of our situation, we often find doubt lurking at the door. And Thomas in our story had that kind of problem. Trying to make sense out of the pain of his confusion and mental anguish. In early, earlier times, Thomas had a lot more courage. He had a lot more spunk. You may remember the situation where Jesus had predicted death for himself. And it was Thomas who said to Jesus and the other disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. If Jesus is going to die, let's do it all together. You know. You know, it's easy to say certain kinds of things when we do not directly face the issue ourselves. It's fairly easy for a healthy person to say to a sickly person, trust in God. All of this has great meaning to me. For when my father was dying and the weight of his pain was greater than he could bear, he began to wonder whether or not he was really saved. And I had no questions about my father's salvation. He had demonstrated it so many times and so fearlessly. But now, with the pressure of intense pain, the devil was tormenting my father. And this was the time for me to bring encouragement to him the best I knew how. And things were different for Thomas also. Thomas had seen Jesus mistreated, crucified, buried, and his confidence was badly shaken, badly shaken by an earthquake that no doubt was off the Richter scale. And for Thomas, the universe had collapsed when Jesus was crucified. And without the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that he was one of the men to be most pitied. 
Thomas, being absent when Jesus came to his disciples, had missed the joy of seeing the Lord and of hearing him speak those words of peace be to you. It's obvious he had missed the peace itself. And his denial in verse 25 of our text feels like a man who was wretched, nervous, restless, suffering. And any profile of a doubter is similar to the profile of Thomas. Staying away by himself, staying away by yourself, rather than meeting with his former companions, with us meeting with fellow Christians, only continues the misery of doubt. Thomas was under a dark cloud and had grown somewhat combative. And a doubting person will be often combative and ready to challenge people and demand proof per his own standards. Thomas couldn't understand it all and his perplexity added to his discomfort and deepened his doubt. And what Thomas needed and which he received from the Lord were not words of rebuke and questioning, hey Thomas, how come you weren't there with us uh, a week or so ago? You would have seen, but now you weren't there. You just absented yourself, and now you have a problem. So exactly, what does a despairing person need? What does a despairing person need? If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to Job chapter 6. In the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. And the book just before Psalms is Job. That may help to find it. Job chapter 6, verse 14. And you may want to underline this verse. And here's what it says. Job six fourteen. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. Why? So that... He does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Despair is a dangerous place. And what people need is kindness from a friend, which means a hug, maybe without words. Maybe it means a weeping with them. Just staying with them, sitting down quietly with them. Kindness. So that they do not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Moving on. Another area of difficulty that contributes to doubt is when our faith is out of focus or when we have a hazy or faulty view of God. Have you ever gone to an airport and notice people obviously waiting for someone that they didn't know, so they have a sign with the name on it? Well, several years ago, I went to Boston and was told that someone would meet me at the airport and then drive me to New Hampshire where I was scheduled to speak at a conference grounds called Camp Berea. I got off the plane, 
and entered a waiting room full of people. Many, it seemed, were being met by friends and family. Now, these were the days before 9-11. I looked here and I looked there. And after a while, I looked for a sign with my name on it. I looked at faces of people who seemed to be waiting for someone. And then I said to myself, maybe I should look for a Christian face. Now, don't ask me what kind of face that is. I guess I was looking for someone, according to my own perception, that had a kindly face. And as I was wondering what my next step should be, a couple came forward and asked if I was Mr. Santucci. And I said, yes. And then after an apology by them, the lady said, we completely missed you. We were expecting someone quite different. (laughs) I smiled and let that one go. (laughs) Though I did wonder what kind of image they had in mind. A faulty view of God is very similar to that kind of experience. For whatever reason, a person gets into his head such a wrong idea of God that when certain difficulties arise, he may expect God to act in a certain way. And when that doesn't happen, he's disappointed and doubt raises its ugly head. He was expecting someone different. Let me go back to my airplane story and experience at the Boston airport. Suppose the people assigned to welcome me had stayed with their preconceptions to the point of concluding that I had not arrived. In one sense, they would be right. The person they had in mind had not arrived. And so they would have left without the person they had come to get. But more importantly, they would also be wrong. Very wrong because I would have been there all the time. And their wrongful preconceptions would have deceived them. Are you with me? Do we look for God in the wrong places? Or do we look for Him to behave per our own preconceptions? Isn't it sad to think that we would be unaware that He has been there all the time? And we were looking for someone different. We just missed him because we didn't recognize him. And like the lady in the story, I was expecting someone quite different. Of course, we know, don't we? That one of the great missions of Jesus was to reveal the Father. Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 18, that no man has seen God, but God, the only Son who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. And Jesus further said, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Dear friends, we need to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we will miss seeing who God is.
will miss them. For Thomas, regardless of having spent over three intimate years with Jesus, could not shake his preconception that the grave is the master of it all. He couldn't shake that. This was the case even though Thomas had seen Lazarus raised from the grave. And for Thomas, it was evident. It was all over when Jesus died and was placed in that tomb with a great big stone rolled over it. The text in verse 25 goes on, however, to tell us that Thomas is willing to believe, but only on certain conditions. And he himself will lay down what those conditions are. Thomas will be the one to establish the rules of evidence. There are certain standards that Thomas would establish that had to be met. Hearing about Jesus and his being alive from at least ten eyewitnesses was not enough. The standard in the Old Testament was in the mouths of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. And here were at least ten, probably more, that had seen Jesus. Wasn't good enough for Thomas. He wanted to see himself. He wanted to touch. Otherwise, he would not believe in Jesus, whom we know was in fact very much alive. Are we like that? If God will not perform per our conditions, our standards, our agenda, will we then declare our unbelief? I will not believe. Doubt often becomes unreasonable, irrational, and demanding. And the struggle that Thomas had with the resurrection just didn't fit his preconceived notion of what it would be like. And I might add some preconceived notions die very, very hard. Notice Thomas wasn't convinced, even though he had heard the words of Jesus himself, that Jesus said he would rise from the dead on the third day. And even though he had heard the words of the, of the witnesses, his fellow disciples, that Jesus was alive, he still remained obstinate and unconvinced. A faith that is out of focus is not far removed from doubt. And people who are a little like Thomas, you know, can't tolerate gaps in the details. And I'd like to say this to all of us. God does not give us a detailed map of the Christian life. The call of faith is commitment to a person rather than the assurance of all the details of the journey. You know, like we're walking along and we hit a bump in the road. And how come that bump was there? I didn't see it before. I've traveled that road before and I didn't experience the bump. Are we then to stop believing? Because we don't have all the details.
I saw an ad on television the other night, and it was showing a beautiful SUV. It was an Escalade. And uh, the Escalade was going through various maneuvers, as they often do with cars. And they said, seeing is believing. Seeing this automobile and seeing it perform so wonderfully is believing. You know what the New Testament suggests? Just the opposite. It's not seen as believing. Believing is seen. When we believe Jesus, when we believe this Word, then we can say that we see clearly. Seeing is not always believing. Believing, trusting, having faith is the path that we're called to walk in. Well, what are some of the prescriptions for doubt? First, we don't need vague perceptions about God, but we need to see Jesus. I am convinced that it is not clever, logical, theological arguments that resolve the dilemmas of doubt. We can win arguments. There used to be those people that knocked on our doors. And uh, I used to argue with them. Really argue with them. And I would bring out my Bible and I would bring out my Greek New Testament. And uh, um, I never, never won anybody that way. Finally began to... I learned from Kathleen. And uh, when they knock on my door, the first thing I would say to them, would you like to pray about our conversation? I haven't had one take me up on that. They don't want to pray. We don't necessarily need then those clever, logical arguments to resolve the dilemma of doubt. God did not meet the suffering of Job with a set of theological answers. As a matter of fact, He never gave Job an answer to why Job had been suffering so badly. But He did reveal Himself to Job in a wonderful way. He revealed Himself to Job in Job chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41 by asking Him a series of questions, 40 in all actually, and the first one is really a Lulu. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Oh, boy. That'd give you a headache. But Job saw the majesty of God. He saw the omnipotence of God. He saw that through these questions that God asked him. Actually, prior to that first question, uh, God said, Who is this who comes to me without knowledge? Who's a dumbbell, actually, as far as things are concerned? 
Job is completely and thoroughly satisfied because he's caught a vision of God. Because he saw who God is. And these are only 40 questions. I'm sure God could have asked another 40. Job finally says to him in chapter 42 in verse 6, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I repent in dust and ashes. He was totally, totally convinced. I want to make a suggestion of how to read the Scriptures that I, may be, that I believe may help in this matter of doubt. When we read the Bible, particularly the Gospels, goes head directly for Jesus, for the Lord Jesus. Set aside for a while the theological issues that you may see there. Because yes, they're there, and they're important, but they pale in insignificance in comparison to seeing the Lord Jesus. And I suggest that people read the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the Gospel that tells us of the incarnation, of the life of the Lord Jesus, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. Luke is the story Gospel. There are more parables in the Gospel of Luke than in any other Gospel. Luke is the prayer Gospel. There's more said about prayer in Luke than any other gospel. Luke is the gospel of the Son of Man, the Son of God, the God-man who identifies with us. And look at him. And look at the condition of people that Jesus meets with and does what he says. Why are there so many miracles in the Gospels? What do they teach us? They teach me this. We find out in other places that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. And those miracles tell me that God is still able to meet my need, to meet your need, every need here. None accepted. And there are, gossip, there are miracles that seem to be lesser and there are miracles that seem to be, wow. They're, they're just so huge and so... But God is able to meet my need. A second thing I'd like for us to consider is there are times when we experience dryness in our spiritual life. You ever experienced some dryness? in your spiritual life. The hymns don't seem quite to touch you, move you as they once did. Uh, the reading of the Scripture seems a little dry. Uh, it's not exciting. It seems that the old ways of knowing God in the midst of our doubt are no longer effective. At these points of spiritual stillness, you know, He can still meet the needs of our heart. But what may be necessary is to hear our Lord on other channels of communication. And let me tell you what I mean. We may need to tune out the channel of our busyness and tune into the channel of just being 
quiet. One of the things that's been very helpful for me is that every day around lunchtime or maybe just after, I go out and sit in the backyard all by myself and I'm just quiet. Oh, I look at my rose garden. I look at other things. I hear the birds. Just quiet there. And allow God to quiet my spirit. Psalm 19 says, God is not silent in his universe, but he speaks. And it's always counterproductive to withdraw from God's people. We need to tune into the channel of allowing God's people to love us, to nurture us, to encourage us. There's a terrific example of this in Second Corinthians chapter 7, where the apostle says he had conflicts within and conflicts without. He was a mess. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 6 says, But God, who comforts, listen to this word, the depressed, comforted me by the coming of Titus. This is why Titus is one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. He was an encourager. And he, I don't know how he did this, got alongside the Apostle Paul. And encouraged him. Encouraged him to the point where the depression left. Look for a Titus. If things are not going well. If things are dry. Look for a Titus. Though the bottom line is always to look freshly at Jesus. And this is what uh, Thomas responded to when he saw him. And I can imagine Jesus standing upright, not bent over, weary after that ordeal, but standing straight and upright, God's man. And Thomas didn't want to look at the hands or the side. He didn't respond to the evidences, but he did respond to seeing the Lord Jesus. And one last suggestion to close. We need to pray for the gift of patience, particularly when we feel we have been kept waiting. You know, uh, I've prayed for ten days for this. And no answer. Others, I prayed for a couple of months and no answer. I prayed for a couple of years and no answer. Most of us don't find it easy to wait. Even the waiting brings some kind of anxiety and stress to us. But waiting tells us something. It shows us the level of our relationship to the person we are waiting for. And I'd like to pose this question. Would a young man wait for his girlfriend in the same way he waits for the next appointment with the dentist? 
You got the question? One face of waiting would be one of the light. The other face of dread. It tells us of our relationship. Waiting tells us the level of our relationship to the person we're waiting for. In closing, may the Lord help us from time to time as we struggle with this monster of doubt. And may we look freshly to the Lord Jesus and through Him see the Father. Father, that great word of relationship. That word that suggests family. May we tune out the channels of our busyness and tune into the channel of just being quiet before God. May we learn to wait patiently. And I close with a verse from the book of Isaiah. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary They shall walk and not faint. May the Lord bless us in our waiting, in our struggle with uh, doubt. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that we have a gracious God like you who understands our weaknesses who knows all about this frame of dust in which we live. And He knows that the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And we respond to uh, earthly stimuli which encourages our doubt. And Father, we say, Lord, help us. Help us to believe. Help our unbelief. Bless this company of your people, Father, and draw us together in unity and in love for one another. And and may we find this place to be a a healing place, a a place where uh, we can meet with you and you with us. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you today. Thank you for meeting with us already. And we... Say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Amen.